You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Official six months now since Mercy's Door sent Pastor Michael and his family down to Georgetown, Texas uh, to be part of planting a new gospel outpost down there. Like a full six months, like it went by like that. But it also means that Advent came upon us in like two seconds from my perspective. And this is going to be my very first time as the lead teaching pastor of Mercy's Door uh, walking us through an Advent series. And as I was thinking about that, um, I I had read some really discouraging stuff over the last um, six months uh, that just gets published on, you know, pragmatic pastoral websites that says that Uh, When there's a change in lead teaching pastor in a church, it takes an average of seven years, it says, for the congregation to take to the new pastor, okay? Uh, Now, I don't know how true that is. It's probably super true for like a church that's like 150 years old or whatever and uh, does 40 years per pastor. Maybe I'll have a little bit of a head start on that since I was here the whole time. Uh, But seven years is a long time. And uh, in that, you know, there's been this um, insecurity on my part, frankly, where there's just, in the, especially in that first six months, six weeks, eight weeks of transition, just thinking, like, goodness, Michael, Pastor Michael, my dear friend, we've been friends 12 years, we were up at our sending church together for six years, came down here, uh, did five years of ministry together down here, like, we're cut from the same cloth, but we're not the same man, you know, in that we're, we're different, right? And there are two key differences between us as brothers uh, that, that kind of stand out to me that ultimately impact you, I'm sorry. But uh, here's, here's what they are. Uh, the first is that, we, you know, and this is really what made uh, Pastor Michael and I uh, such great friends and good Christian brothers, um, is that he and I function um, from a, a dominant viewpoint in relationship to God just a little bit differently. It's a subtle difference, but it shows up in preaching, and this is where it affects you, right? Um, I swear this is going somewhere. <laughs> what, what's great about the friendship between Michael and I is everybody kind of falls into one of three camps when it comes to relating to Jesus, okay? Uh, the majority of Christians that I'll meet um, that come from super traditional backgrounds where they really love uh, church tradition, um, kind of your old school Baptist type, right? They primarily relate to Jesus in the past. Uh, when they think about Jesus, when they relate to Jesus, they, they think about all of the stories about him. They look at the biblical account and they just say like, this Jesus at one time in history did some really incredible things and they draw encouragement from that. And so like when hard times come uh, for them and when they're, when they're confronted with the sins and brokenness of the, of the world, they look to Jesus back there and, are rem- and they're reminded of his goodness, which is absolutely a part of our worship. And then there is uh, the second camp that primarily relates to Jesus in the future. This is me. Okay, my primary uh, relationship with Jesus is to think about those things which are yet to come. And so as I am confronted with the sin and the brokenness of the world and, and, and I see that things are not how they should be, I draw my comfort from looking to the promises of Jesus that are yet to be fulfilled and I think about his return and I think about his kingdom advancing and I think about that great day that is coming. And then there is beautiful Pastor Michael, who is in a, in a friendship to me is calling me always into the present moment, relating to Jesus primarily in his presence today, thinking about how his grace and his mercy is applied to a person in the everyday stuff of life. 
And so there was always, between us and friendship, this, this tension where he would be like, come on out of the future, Adam, and enjoy Jesus today. And where I would say, yeah, but isn't the primary way that we enjoy Jesus today, that we receive from his goodness today, is by letting his promises about what is to come wash over us, right? Like, ultimately, isn't this person still dying? You know, isn't, isn't, isn't this person still sick? Isn't, don't, don't I need more than, uh, than presence that helps me deal with pain? Don't I actually need the problem of pain to be dealt with, right? And so there's, there's a fullness of the culmination of the promises of Jesus that we look to uh, when we see his return, right? And so that shows up in preaching, and that one of the main reasons why I loved sitting under the preaching of Pastor Michael was that he just had this beautiful way of bringing the goodness of the Lord into the room for you to receive and drink deeply today. And one of the main ways that I preach relating to Jesus differently is to say, draw your encouragement and your courage from looking at what is to come, right? And so I kind of preach this high view, this big view of Jesus, and I thought, you know, the church is going to feel that. They're going to feel that if, if I just live there. And so the, first of all, point number one, it's not really in the text, is that we need each other and that we're meant to relate to Jesus in the past, in the present, and in the future, and we all have an inclination to primarily uh, talk to him and, and, and relate with him in one of those three. And so we need one another to encourage each other into the fuller picture. But then it was time for me to pick an Advent series, first one, and of course I go with Isaiah. And when I pick Isaiah, I pick it because what I see is promises of Jesus, or promises about Jesus that then take like 700 years to fulfill, and some of them we're still waiting for right? And so, like, I love seeing my God work across ages. But I read this book uh, called The Shepherd Preacher when I was first getting started in my new role uh, because I really wanted to know, like, how do I relate to the flock in the moment, you know, and, and just be in the room with you guys. And he gave this, the author gave this great illustration. He's a pastor. He said that what he learned to do is that after he had kind of crafted his sermon, he would fill his study with empty chairs, and then he would cast faces into the chairs as he was preparing his heart, and he would see you guys. He would fill the chairs with the church, and he would ask the Lord, who is this for? Who do you want to specifically extend your care to? Who would you have me shepherd? And that that helped him kind of root in the moment. So I was doing that with the Advent series, and here's what I learned. As we look at some of the stuff we're going to see throughout the book of Isaiah, and in this Advent series, what we're going to do is we're going to pull these different prophecies that found their fulfillment or will find their fulfillment in Jesus, and we're going to look at them together. And what I'm going to try to resist doing, what I'm going to try to ask the Lord to help us with, is to not just see a God who does beautiful things in the future, but a God who, by telling us and making us promises for today, is loving us now. Okay, so my hope is that we will both draw our hope from what is to come and be comforted by those promises now. Okay, they're not pitted against each other, but they are, in fact, one. So will you guys pray with me to the end, and then we'll jump into our text this morning. Well, Father God, that's what I desire from you this morning, Lord, and I know that you delight to say yes to a prayer like this, Lord, when we say, come, Lord Jesus, when we ask your presence to fill a room, Lord, we're asking you for something that is already so. And so I guess the truer prayer is to say, Lord, would you 
help me as a weak and imperfect preacher to behold you, to receive you, to enjoy you here in the moment, and to invite your flock to do the same, Lord. I pray that the role of the future activity would be meaningful and useful to us today. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so I've got two passages for us this morning. Um, For time's sake, what I'm going to do is kind of gloss over the first one and spend most of our time in the second one because they're closely related. The first passage was from Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, where the prophet Isaiah writes, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And our second passage for this morning is taken from Isaiah chapter 9. If you want to flip ahead two chapters, in verse 6 and 7, this is where we'll be most of the time this morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what I want to do this morning as we look at this first prophecy is what we see as a birth announcement of Jesus, both of them birth announcements of a king, of a Messiah. What I want for us to do is to hold out names that we are given for Jesus and then draw from those names that are spoken over us about Jesus what comforts are available to us or what gifts are available to us in the truth about that identity of our King Jesus. Okay, you tracking with me? So the first thing that I want us to see this morning in, in uh, really both of these birth announcements is that it was made really early. Kind of circle back to my introduction. This was made 700 years before the kid would actually be born. Right? To us, a son is, is, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Like, God, we've got different definitions of is here when you start dropping this 700 years early. Right? And so one of the things that I want to hold out to you guys right away this morning is to say that some of us really have a problem or difficulty with the long-suffering nature of God. Why is it that he speaks so much sooner than he does? Why does he do this? And a lot of us just really aren't okay with this. And what happens with the passing of time is for many of us, we start to waver in doubt the words of God and the promises of God. Because we've been waiting. I mean, let's look at our God, right? 400 years his people were in Egyptian captivity before he released them. 40 years they wandered the, the desert before they were brought into the promised land. 60 years they were in Babylonian captivity. 400 years between Malachi and the New Testament, this intertestamental period where God just goes silent 400 years, 2,000 years since Jesus walked this earth and he said, surely I will return for you. Like, what does that do to you? And what ought it do to you is the question that we want to tackle this morning. 
So in the context of Isaiah, what I want you to know is that these prophecies, these promises about a child who would be born, who would bear the government upon his shoulders, it was spoken as the Assyrian armies were moving in on the people. In fact, they would be successful, the Assyrians would be successful in taking the northern kingdom from the Israelites and thrusting them into exile. So why, firstly, did God speak his promises over the people? well in advance of it coming, in order, like we said this in the beginning, that these things would be the strength that they drew from as they entered into the hard things that were to come. You see, church, in the same way we are to relate to the return of Jesus, just as, just as God, the Lord God, spoke through Isaiah to the people as the Assyrians started taking the northern kingdom from them, saying, oh no, there's a son who's coming. And the, kingdom, and, and, and the kingdoms will be upon his shoulder. The whole government will be upon his shoulder. He'll be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. I mean, imagine how that sounds to you as the, the, the great armies of Assyria are, are moving in on you. As he says that of the expansion of his peace, there will be no end. Like, yeah, you want that to be true right now but you're also really glad that it's coming. Because the truth is, is that the Lord has ordained that hard things would continue for some time, and we need to ask why. I didn't come up here this morning to like, solve the problem of pain and suffering in a, in, in a single, single sermon, but I want you guys to know that as long as there is still sin on the face of the earth, it means, on the other hand, that the Lord is still saving people. You see, the day will come where Jesus will return and say enough. But on that day when he says enough, it also means no more. Not just no more sin, but no more salvation. That no more will be given the opportunity to repent. That no more will be brought into his kingdom. No more will be ransomed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. No more. So as long as he patiently stays his hand of wrath and judgment upon the face of the earth, as long as he patiently endures with the, with the moving of sin and brokenness across the face of the earth, what we see is that he is also patiently saving. That he has looked out over the ages, over the face of the earth, and he has declared, these ones will be mine. He has chosen a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation that he will ransom to the glory of his son. So why is he so long-suffering? Well, because he is a patient and loving God who has willed to save, and he's not done. This is good news. And yet his patience also means the trouble of the saints. It means that we're not saved into immediate prosperity that we must pass through death to be united with him, and that we must see the effects of sin on the face of the earth until he establishes his kingdom in its fullness. And if this is true, then it is his love, it is compassion upon you and upon I that he would drop promises to hover over us, even if they are promises that he intends to uphold for hundreds or thousands of years. It's to say, I've got work to do. It's going to take me a minute, but know this. And then to let promises wash over you about what is to come. And it's in this way that you and I can say, yeah, okay, 
So to hope in and to look to the future is to find my comfort today. And if I'm going to find comfort today, I must fix my eyes on the future. Otherwise, we have to pretend that things are not jacked up. But they are. They're as bad as it seems. He's as good as he says. And his promises allow us to hold these two things in tension and to have hope in the presence as he works. That's the first thing. This birth announcement was really early. Why? That they might have comfort in their time of trouble. And we just happened to preach, just happened, I believe in a sovereign God. We just happened to preach over the last two weeks in our gospel account of John this promise of Jesus that he will return for us, that he goes to prepare a place for us. 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. Why? He spoke those promises then that we might take our comfort now about what is to come. Second part of this birth announcement is we see that he announces a royal birth, a royal birth. In that he says that the government will be upon his shoulder, right? That the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish and uphold it. So it's not just the birth of a child, it's the birth of a royal that is announced here. Here in Luke, cross-referencing in chapter 1, verse 32 to 33, we read, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In Luke chapter 17, 20 and 21, we read, being asked by the Pharisees, Jesus, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Of course, Jesus referring to his very person standing in front of them. And so what we see here is that there's this announcement 700 years early about a king, a royal who would come. Then that king, that royal, comes and he starts talking about his kingdom. And the Pharisees are like, well, where is it? And he's like, right here. And then he said he's going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell the church. We've been preaching on this. The kingdom of God is at hand, literally at hand. And yet, all of the attributes of the kingdom of God are not here. They're not. People are still killing each other, right? That's not the kingdom of God. And so, in part, in this veiled way that Jesus talks about in, in his day, in this present age, the kingdom isn't coming in ways that can be observed that will say, look, here it is or there. Behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Church, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That's your present comfort. But the return of the king as the conquering Messiah, not the suffering Messiah, the one who brings an end, not just to the penalty of sin for Christians, but of the consequences of sin on the face of the earth, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, when he will wipe the tears from our eyes, when there will be no more suffering, neither will there be pain any longer, the, this culmination of the kingdom, well, that one's still yet to come. And so we say, yeah, the kingdom's in my midst, and Jesus is currently on his throne. That's the right now. 
And yet we still say with John in Revelation, come Lord Jesus. Because we are meant and designed to, to desire the fulfillment, the full fulfillment of this promise that he would be the royal king whose increase of his peace there will be no end. And then of this birth announcement, we see four names that are given to Jesus that are belonging only to God. And then as a bonus, because I get to do this, I'm going to give him three more. I want us to understand Jesus in this passage as the Son of Man, if you're a note taker, Son of Man, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. One more time for you note takers, Son of Man, Son of God, King of Kings, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We can start this morning with the ones that I pulled in. The reason why I pull Son of Man, I didn't make up Son of Man, Son of God, or King of Kings. They're just not in this passage, and yet they are. The first thing that I want you guys to see this morning is that Jesus' birth announcement is given like this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. To us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And similarly, when you flip back to chapter 7, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so within this birth announcement, we see two things declared, and then we see them lived out in the life of Jesus, that he was both fully man and fully God, the son of man and the son of God. Now, it's significant that he was the son of man, that he was born of a woman. Like, we have to ask, like, did it matter that he was born of a woman, that he was born of a virgin? Does that matter? It does matter. In being born of a woman, Jesus took on humanity. He took on human flesh. He was one of us, not an alien wrapped in human skin. He was human, right? He was one of us, and this matters. This matters greatly because when we read that he belongs to us like a son of man, we know that he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. I take this from Hebrews chapter 2. I hope I wrote it down, otherwise I'll flip to it. I'll flip to it. Hebrews chapter 2. It goes like this, verse 17. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What we see is that Jesus, in being the Son of Man and being made like us, is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Now, I don't mean sympathy like he feels bad for you. I mean sympathy like he gets it, like he knows what it's like to be you, to be in your position. He knows what it's like to face the temptations of the world. He knows what it's like to feel temptation to sin. He knows what it's like to be taunted. He knows what it's like to be mocked and ridiculed and jeered. He knows what it's like to be beaten. He knows what it's like to be forsaken and forgotten and neglected. He knows what it's like to be killed. He knows what it's like to die. Jesus is the Son of Man, can identify with us in everything that this world can throw at us, everything. This is huge. 
And in Hebrews chapter 4, just a little bit further, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So when it is announced that a son will be conceived, that a son will be born, what we see about Jesus is that he is very much human, very much like us, and we draw from that the promise that he sympathizes with us. We have his sympathy. This is super important for you as you try to relate to him today. Because Hebrews says that it's on account of that that we can draw near to his throne of grace in confidence. We don't go trembling as if we are walking into the holy of holies when the, when the barrier was still up between man and God. In drawing near to us and becoming like us and walking this actual earth in a real city, talking to real people, ministering in a real body with a real name to a real mom, to a real stepdad. He identifies with humanity, and he now reigns forever at the right hand of the Father bodily, in human form. He looks like you. He's called that right. And it's your hope for the fulfillment of your true humanity. When you look at yourself and you're like, I'm not right, Jesus is. When you're like, I'm in need of fixing, Jesus is like, you'll be made into my image. I will finish the work that I began in you. You will be conformed into the image of the Son. And in so doing, you won't become gods. You'll become human. You'll become what it means to be fully human. This is huge. But he's not just the Son of Man, it would be devastating if he was just the Son of Man. He is also the Son of God. And we read that in this passage when it says that his name shall be Mighty God. We know this, of course, from other passages as well. I and the Father are one and all the rest. You get it? But if Jesus was just the Son of Man, well, I don't need your sympathy if you can't do anything about it. He's also the Son of God. He can't just relate to you. He also relates to the Father perfectly. He knows exactly what it's like to be God because he is God. Well, that's huge because that means that when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and we preached this three, four weeks ago, that what he means by that primarily is I am the truth about God. Well, we look to him and we say, okay, does that mean that when you show me tender compassion, that you're reflecting the attitude of God towards his people? Yeah, that's what that means. When you lay down your life for me, you're showing the heart of God towards man? Yeah, those who are found in him. It's huge. King of kings, I've taken, we're going to kind of merge these, kind of fluffy, we'll merge them together. But king of kings, the government shall be upon his shoulders. 
the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He is our king of kings. And what this means is that when you scan the face of the earth and you see it filled with wicked kings, with imperfect kings, with leaders who just bring destruction and dismay upon the people, you could take your heart in knowing they are under him. He is over them. And he's not just the king of kings in that he could rule, he does rule. He establishes them. He tears them down. He determines the number of their days. He rules from above, and he does whatever he pleases is our God. His will is done. Many are the plans of man. The Lord laughs at them. He reigns. He truly reigns. And yet, we still await the culmination of the full fulfillment of this promise and that he will literally take up a throne in front of you and you will behold it with your eyes in the new heavens and the new earth. And on that day, we read in Revelation, I've got to preach it again today, but just to know, like his glory will be your light. You will draw your, you you, you will see on account of his glory. You will find your warmth on account of his glory. He will literally be your present king not reigning from a place we cannot see, but reigning right in front of us. Back to our passage, wonderful counselor. I want you guys to, this is the one that hit me the most. Of course it did for me. Wonderful counselor, I want you to hear this right. I don't mean like a good therapist, okay? I know that we use those words interchangeably. Wonderful counselor, meaning the counsel of his will, his knowledge, his wisdom, it's wonderful. What I'm saying about our God, about our Jesus this morning, is that he knows all. Brett and I, Pastor Brett and I, we were on a a long drive uh, several weeks ago, and like you would, two pastors would be prone to do, we were just talking about God and just stuff we love about him. And we were just marveling as we were talking, and, and at one point I said to him, I just, I can't get my head around that God has never come into knowing of something, of a thing. Like, he's never learned anything, right? Like, there was never something that he didn't know, and then he did. Because that's a very human thing, in that, like, we can go, like, 1,200 years, 13, 14, 1,500 years, like, not having any awareness of the laws of physics, and then we know, right? And we like to act like when we come into knowledge of something, it comes into existence, Right? But like God has known all things. We know about our God that he's like aware of the things that are happening in the places that human eyes will never sit, will never see. Like he's clothing lilies that no human will ever pick. He's pouring rain on deserts that no human will ever walk. Like all of his activity isn't centered around you. He's doing stuff out there in the universe that our telescopes will never behold. He is all-knowing, our Jesus, all-wise, our Jesus, a wonderful counselor from Romans eleven thirty four. for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? 
From John 7, 46, the officers answered about Jesus. No one has ever spoken like this man. From John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. Like he can claim of himself that he is the truth. Like we seek to learn the truth. He is the truth. And then, I don't know if I've given myself enough time, but I guess I can keep you here as long as I want, right? I'm just going to read this to you just because it's good. This is from Job chapter 38. I'm just going to read until I want to be done. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said this to him. Who's this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. That can be translated as gird up your loins, Job. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place and that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked shall be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the path to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble and for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft the channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste in the desolate land and to make the ground sprout forth with grass? Has the rain a father, or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth, and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen." Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazareth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom, or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Job's a long book. 
mean, come on. <laughs> We're talking about infinite wisdom, infinite power, such that humans are undone when he speaks over them. I mean, I love his sense of humor and sarcasm addressing Job there, but it's silly the way that we elevate our wisdom. Like, we know nothing compared to our all-knowing God. He's a wonderful counselor, not a good counselor, a wonderful counselor. Like, the counsel of the will of God, the things that he knows, they're unspeakably wonderful. It should strike awe in you. Like, what is your comfort here? That our Jesus never wonders what to do. This is what Brett and I were talking about. He's never been like, I wonder how this will go. Never. Our God has never come into knowing of a thing and been like, how do I handle that? Our God has never been curious. He's not like us in that way. This is a huge comfort because when you don't know, he does. When you're like, I don't know what to do, Jesus is like, I do. When you're like, I don't know how this will turn out, Jesus does. And knowing all things from beginning to end, our Lord set his will in motion. In Isaiah 46, verse 10, it says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Like he's going to do what he wants to do. He's got the power to do it and he's got the wisdom to do it. And it's so important that we hold these names together. I mean, when we're given four names for Jesus at his birth announcement, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, these are meant to be compounding in offering you comfort to, for today. Like, frankly, who cares if God knows everything if he can't do anything about it, right? He's not just a brain in the sky. His hands do whatever he pleases. And this is where we see him called mighty God. Mighty God who declares the ends from the beginnings, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. It means that you cannot thwart the plans of God. You cannot outrun him. You cannot undo him. You cannot outsmart him, outwit him. You don't win. And even when you're trying to run away from him, you're like this big, and he's like this big, and so like you run your whole life, and he's just like, you know? <laughs> Praise him. It's your comfort today. And he will show his might on the face of the earth when he judges the nations and brings an end to all that hurts. Everlasting Father is the next name that we are given for the Messiah. 
Psalm 103.13 about this name says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Well, we can draw from the fatherhood, the everlasting fatherhood of our God, is that we have his compassion. We have his compassion. He relates to us like a father does to his children. And maybe that's a jacked up term for you. A lot of us had bad dads. You've got a good one. You've got an everlasting one. In Jesus, the everlasting father, the truth about the father. You know, we preached this several weeks ago when I said, do you look to Jesus to inform you about who God is? Is he your primary picture when you relate to the Father? Do you come into understanding of his nature and character, his emotion, wrong word, as you look at Jesus? Everlasting Father or eternal Father might be a better translation of the word. It suggests that he didn't become a father when he made people. And he didn't become a father when Jesus was born. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit have all coexisted for eternity, past and future. The fatherhood of our God is essential to his nature. It has always been. And in creating humans and choosing to relate to us, he necessarily relates to us as a father because he is a father. The father of all things, the living and the dead, the maker of all things. He birthed the world. He's a father. That's who he is. He's always been a father to the son, and he's always been a father to all things. He wasn't creatively trying to come up with an identity that humans could relate to. Humans can relate to it because we were born in his image. We were made in his image. Of course, father makes sense. He never took on this nature, which means he'll never put it down. He is your eternal father, which means he has eternal compassion on you if you are his child. And lastly, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace, this is the one that we want the most, right? It's also the one that fits the most nicely with our, where we're at in our John Sermon series. Like, gee, what did Jesus want if not peace for his people? What a loud message he proclaims over us, right? My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He is our prince of peace. But we read in verse 7 of our passage this morning, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. We have an assurance about the increase of his peace. And we need two forms of peace, don't we? We need peace among one another, peace among men. And way more importantly, we need peace with God. And our Jesus achieves both. Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. He has given us peace with one another. He has united his church so that there is no longer Jew nor Greek nor male or female nor slave nor free man. He has given us peace with one another. But more importantly, Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a ever expansion of the peace of our King that starts here on this side of eternity as he gives peace among men. Like, the church shouldn't make a lot of sense. Your gospel community should be filled with people who you never would have handpicked to be your best friends, right? It's because your gospel communities are not built on shared affinities, are they? You didn't say like, hey, everybody who loves the Kansas City Chiefs are in this one, right? That's not how we did it. It was like, hey, whoever's in that house, those are your people. And amazing community sprouts forth. How can it be so? This doesn't happen anywhere else but in the church. How is it so? Because the Holy Spirit in you has given you unity with all the other brothers and sisters in the faith, and he has given us the ability within the Holy Spirit to have reconciliation with one another and with the world as we bring them into saving faith in Christ. So he's given you peace with man, but he's given you peace with God. Like, this is what we've needed since the garden. Peace with God. He called us his enemies. You were his enemy. I don't know where you stand this morning, but what I do know is that there's only two camps for all of mankind. You either stand opposed to the Lord God because you have not been covered in the blood of the Lamb, of this King, who offers peace between man and God and man and man, or you stand perfectly justified by that blood and have been brought into true peace with your God. But Jesus being the truth has said that he's the only way. And so I'd be remiss this morning if I preach all of these characteristics of Jesus to somebody who maybe doesn't know him, who hasn't received him. And if that's you this morning, if Jesus is a character, if he's a Bible character for you, if he only exists back then, if he is not the Lord of your life, if you are not looking to him alone for your righteousness, for your purification, for your right standing with God, then you are currently an enemy to God. But if you have, take heart. Because the expansion and increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In that last sentence of our passage this morning, it is the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will do all this. I just want you to know that all of these things, they are to the great pleasure of our king. He's doing them out of his own passion, for his own glory, for his own will. He's doing it because he wants to, and the Lord does whatever he wants. And that's our confidence. You don't have to convince him. This was his plan to begin with, so it will be done. And that is a great comfort. And so as you bask in the sympathies of your God, as you behold the sovereignty of your God, his wisdom and his power, as you see his fatherhood and let his sensitivity towards you wash over you, his compassion wash over you, and as you receive his peace, my prayer is that you would spot with me how a promise that took 700 years to fulfill and how another promise that we're still waiting for has functioned today. 
that you would look at these, hear them, and receive today a present comfort for you. Whatever's not been done will be, but what has been done is sufficient for your comfort today. And so maybe you're more like me. Maybe you just really delight to relate to Jesus in the future. I think you're in the right camp. I'm just kidding. But there's real wonder out there to come. The, the truth is, is that we've all walked different lives. Mine has been marked by a significant amount of suffering. And so I think it makes some sense that I would be unimpressed with this world and really looking forward to the next. Maybe you really desire and have seen the Lord most clearly in the ways that he has applied his grace to you in the present. Awesome, please be my friend. Remind me of that, point me to that. And maybe it's in the pages of scripture where you most relate to Jesus and you look at his past faithfulness to encourage you when times are hard. But I want you to know that the Lord works across the ages. He's seen the beginning from the end. He's been the same God from Genesis to Revelation, from the first coming to the second. The comfort is available to you now. In whichever way you relate to Jesus, it's good and it's right. But you might be missing out on a fuller enjoyment of his presence and his grace if you're relating to him only in one of the three. And that's why we need one another. I would encourage you as an assignment this week in closing, when you get together with your gospel communities, that a takeaway question, I'll put it in the Bible app for you, a takeaway question for you would be to relate to the other people in your group and ask them, of those three, which one resonates with you? Are you a futurist? Are you a, I, right here in my circumstances? Or is Jesus just back there somewhere? It will inform for your friends so much about how they love you and the different ways that they can encourage you to behold your Christ. Let me read this over you once more and then we'll pray, us, we'll pray our time out. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray.